0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad, I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing he doctor and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're gonna get on Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, in honor of Delta, we're going to take a break from our planned hashtag zero COVID and we're gonna cover SARS-CoV-2. I'm gonna put together all of the clips I've been putting out on the YouTube channel into one episode. And if you wanna keep up with all of the content, you're going to have to go to YouTube and subscribe and MDMPH, Check it out there. And without further ado, this is a special episode. It's in violation of season four rules, but it is in fact, hashtag all COVID, hashtag Delta. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. There are a lot of doctors who work at universities and there are a lot of doctors who are called professor, but shockingly, there are very few real academics. See, what's the difference between a real academic and somebody who merely has the trappings of being an academic? Well, most people in the academy, even to this day, pick up their beliefs and cues from people around them. They see what their mentor does, what their colleagues do, what their political and social circle believes in, and they internalize those beliefs without doing the hard work of unpacking the data. You see, to be a real academic, you have to take a deep dive into literature, which is what I try to do on this channel. You have to pick a paper and neglect or put aside what you've heard about the paper and ask yourself, if you were really analyzing this question from a neutral or impartial vantage, how might you view it? Even if the question is a loaded question where many quote unquote experts have weighed in on, if you're a real academic, you don't take that for granted. Now, of course, I'm not saying you have to independently assess everything in the world. No one can do that. There's too many claims out there. And the truth is, many claims don't matter to us. I don't personally care that much about most claims. But when claims do matter, when they are important, you cannot take your cues from what you read online. We see online, I think, even in the academy, a growing polarization where our scientific views and our political views are becoming increasingly intertwined. That's very illogical. There is no political party that has the monopoly on the right scientific views. Thinking that is dangerous. And I say this as someone who's strongly left of center and has a political allegiance but even I know that being very left to center doesn't mean I'm right about most scientific issues. And if I took all my scientific beliefs from people who were on my political side, I would believe a lot of wrong things. So it's important when you're in the academy and you're a real academic to do this hard work of picking social and political issues where there may be a cacophony of voices, stepping back and asking yourself what the evidence ought to be to make a strong causal conclusion, and going out and seeing what the evidence is and looking at it with unvarnished lens. I think one of the reasons that dialogue on social media becomes so personal and and, and vehement and angry is because many people recognize that they have not done the hard work of training to read evidence. And they can only blow which way the wind is blowing. They're not capable of appraising an article and reaching a conclusion different than what they've been told by their peer group because they don't have those skills in their tool bag. If they venture to guess, they would get destroyed in the court of public opinion. So the best they can do is merely go along with the flow and when someone comes along and points out things that they don't see or that are incorrect, they can often be angry towards such a person, but that is a juvenile emotional response. So what's my takeaway lesson here is if you're gonna be in the academy, and you don't have to be, there's a lot better places to go. that will pay you a lot more money and have a lot more freedom and a lot more privacy. But if you're in the academy, you gotta battle the war of ideas as the ideas come. When there's an idea in your wheelhouse and you think it's wrong, or an idea in your wheelhouse and you think it's right, You have to independently appraise the evidence and see what you think. And that's the hallmark of a true academic. I've been seeing online that a number of conferences, universities, professional gatherings are all canceling and not for the unvaccinated, they're canceling for the vaccinated. This is a new development. As Delta is hitting parts of this country, there is understandably some anxiety, a palpable anxiety. And so people who have planned in-person gatherings are thinking about what to do. And we're starting to see businesses push back the coming back in-person date. We're starting to see conferences or get-togethers cancel. What does this mean? Well, I'm here to tell you that it doesn't make sense under most circumstances. Now, if that conference or region is in the setting of the hurricane itself, and the health system is overcrowded and reaching capacity, then sure, by all means, cancel large in-person gatherings. But that's not where these places are. Many of these places are places that are not currently in the Delta wave, and also, when the conference is supposed to come a month or two months or three months from now, who knows where they'll be, whether they'll be in the wave or not in the wave. Very likely they won't be in a wave in that moment, because at any given time, the places that are feeling health systems overwhelmed are few and far between. It's not the majority of places. It's a few isolated places at any moment in time. So I think we're forgetting that it's not going to get much safer than it is now. If you've been vaccinated twice, that's a good place to be. Your risk of death, your risk of severe infection is very, very low. Now, you might get a booster, and perhaps transiently it'll be a little bit lower, although we don't have any randomized data. It's the only way to adjudicate that claim. You need randomized data. We don't have that. But it might be a little bit lower for some transient period of time. That'll probably true more for somebody who's older than for somebody who's younger. But I doubt it's going to be a lot different for a whole bunch of time. And the risk will probably never be 0.00%. I've been saying this since January. There's no such thing as 0.0% risk. There is always a chance that you're gonna catch COVID. Even if you've been vaccinated and boosted, there's always a non-zero chance. That's okay, that's life. There's non-zero chances of all sorts of things we live with. And if you close these gatherings, if you postpone your university's opening date, if you close your business or keep people working remotely, you're paying a price, you don't see it. It, They can only take so much. Their mental health is not gonna be able to take it. Their anxiety, their depression, their politics is not gonna be able to take, take it. Living in this online world, working online, it will, it will not go well if it continues indefinitely. It cannot continue indefinitely. We have to get back to society. Now, I know some people are worried that if we go back in person, we're gonna get hit by influenza, we're gonna hit by RSV, we're gonna get hit by common cold, rhinovirus, who knows what may hit us. Of course, that's gonna happen whenever you go back. You're gonna have to go back. That's coming for you. It's gonna come like a tidal wave, and there's no way to avoid it. That's part of life, that's living. There is no way to make it much safer than it is right now. You're better off going back in person as soon as you can in the absence of local healthcare collapse. And if you think there's some magic booster that's gonna come, it's not gonna be magic. If anything, the Delta will be very, very small because the first two doses are so good. There is a saturation effect from medical therapies when they get really good. You're not gonna get much better. You may transiently lower the risk of having a runny nose, but I doubt you're gonna be able to substantively improve the reduction in severe disease and uh, mortality because they're already improved so dramatically with vaccination, especially for older people. So I don't know what you're waiting for. You're letting your fear guide your decisions. You're not letting your brain, and I think, you are in for a rude awakening because the consequences of continuing to delay conferences, continuing to delay the gatherings that make us people, human, social, primates, if you continue to delay that, you're squeezing a balloon and you don't know where that balloon is going to pop. I'm back with a new video. I'm gonna talk about several things in this video. Masking, equipoise, parachutes, a CDC study, the AAP, myocarditis, and boosters. You're in for a treat. First up, masking. Two to five-year-olds. You know, this is a unique situation we're facing in this country because we have a cacophony of voices. Over in Europe, they have the WHO. They have a number of European nations who all believe that you ought not mask kids under the age of six. And even now, they've gotten even more permissive. The UK never masked any child under the age of 12. And now they've removed all the restrictions in the school. In this country, our CDC and our AAP say with confidence, you ought to mask from two and up. And now Illinois just today announced that there's indoor masking mandate for two-year-olds. I don't know what to say. Masking two-year-olds, it's it's a bold move. It's a bold move to do when you don't have any credible data. If you want to do it, run a cluster randomized trial in daycares and show it actually has some benefit, but don't just keep recommending it when you are so much of an outlier compared to the rest of the world. It also doesn't seem quite plausible when you think about the adherence and the saturation of a cloth mask over a two-year-old's day, And the fact that they take it off for their two-hour nap, it doesn't seem very plausible. And that's a recommendation that's not gonna age well. And I tweeted out this morning that if experts do two things, one, they tell every adult that they ought to be vaccinated, which is an amazing recommendation, but they also say that every two-year-old ought to wear a cloth mask, which is a recommendation based on very little credible data. It's no wonder that some people out there who don't have a lot of training in science throw away both suggestions rather than tease these two apart. The vaccinating adults part is brilliant. The masking two-year-olds part is quite unproven, has very low levels of evidence, if any evidence at all. In fact, I'm not aware of any real evidence that's credible on this topic. It also strikes me as a a bit odd recommendation against common sense and also against many European nations that have never done it. That's something that this country has to grapple with, and I think that recommendation is going to hurt hurt confidence in those institutions for a long time to come. Equipoise. People said to me online, like, we don't have equipoise. We're not genuinely unsure as a community about masking children in school. We couldn't do a cluster randomized trial, as you suggest, because we lack equipoise. Well, let me tell you something. If the World Health Organization says not to do it, and the CDC and the AAP say to do it, by definition, you have equipoise. That is global equipoise. It has been created for you. You can't elide that. You can't escape it. It exists. And the fact that you say you don't have equipoise tells me you don't understand. Equipoise. You yourself may have a strong feeling on the topic, but that is not field-wide, community-wide equipoise. And also, there are some ethicists who believe that equipoise is neither necessary nor sufficient for the conduct of randomized control trials. And actually, I am sympathetic to some of those views. Parachutes. People tell me. They say masking kids in school is a parachute. You couldn't ethically test it because it's a lot like a parachute. Well, I don't know if you know that a parachute Without one, you have near a certain chance of death, and with one, you have near a certain chance of survival, and it has an effect size of 99.9999 and change over a 15-minute time horizon. I I hate to tell you that masking kids in school are having the mask policy, because the control arm would be people have the option of masking, as they've always had since time immemorial, to mask if they wish, but the intervention arm is the mandate to mask. I doubt that that's a parachute. It don't got a 99.99999% effect size over 15 minutes. In fact, I know it doesn't. So don't use that as an analogy. You don't understand that analogy if in fact you are using it the CDC study. Now, there's a great article in New York Magazine. You got to check this out. This is the case against masking kids, and it's a really thoughtful case that examines a lot of the things that I've been talking about. And in this article, they cited the CDC's own study from Georgia, which did an analysis of many covariates to see what predict the rate of cases in a school. And they found that if you adjusted for community spread, and they binned it in a few groups, that the independent use of a student cloth mask mandate was not statistically significantly associated with a lower rate of SARS-CoV-2 infections in the school. Those are the results of the study. Now, many experts on Twitter said, well, it would have gotten there if it had a little bit more power. It's almost there, it's trending to significance, it just needs a little bit more power. The reason that argument is erroneous is that if you increase the sample size, it is possible it became more significant, but it's also possible it becomes even less significant, and the difference is less pronounced. But moreover, we're arguing about, we're arguing about this little study. This study is so bad. It has the, the poorest adjustment for covariates I've seen. It's kind of a back-of-the-envelope kind of study. It's not a real rigorous causal study. So why are we spending so much time talking about this? If you want to prove that there's a causal effect here, run the Cluster Randomized Control Trial, the AAP the AAP. You know, I pushed back on them in a couple of ways. One, this recommendation of masking kids two to five, I find, is deviating from the WHO, and they're pushing it pretty ardently. I also think that they have a track record of making recommendations and setting with ambiguous or inconclusive data that turned out to bite them in the ass, such as the recommendation against exposure to peanuts in people with a high risk of peanut allergies, which was not only the wrong thing to recommend, it was exactly the opposite of what you wanted to recommend. Now. The thing that troubled me is that some people say the AAP's mission is to defend the interests of children, and I beg to differ. Like all professional societies, the Clinical Oncology Society, the Hematology Society, the American Medical Association, the Institute of a Professional, society, the interest of a professional society, is to defend the professional society. And insofar as the professional society is invested in the care of people, which it is, they all are, there's a nice dovetail there, they will do that. But when the interests of the professionals and the interests of the constituents defer, they will they will do the interests of the professionals. That's a professional society, it's not, I'm not making this up, this is just the way the world works. Um, and so you should count on the American Society of Clinical Oncology to recommend some payment models that if it was actually in the patient's best interest to, you know, not have that drug markup, but it's in the best interest of, you know, a lot of practices to have that drug markup, you know, there might be attention there. Similarly, it's true for all organizations. And what caught my attention is the AAP's kind of dueling rhetoric around the use of off-label or EUA access in the age group 5 to 11. Now, we know in early August, the AAP submitted a letter to the FDA. This was after the FDA asked to expand the sample size of the 5 to 11 study, citing the possibility of examining a rare safety event with more detail. The AAP said, you don't need to wait for that. Go ahead and give us the EUA with the initial cohort and you know we'll go from there. Then on August 23rd, the AAP put out an announcement after the full approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that they advised against their own practitioners administering this vaccine off-label. Now, you might wonder, how do you reconcile these two positions? They wanted the EUA access, and they pushed the FDA to give it, but when they got the full approval, and you can prescribe off-label, they advise pediatricians not to do that. Now, I personally think you ought not do that. There's a reason why we're running clinical trials, and that's to both examine efficacy, but also to look for safety in ways that may be unanticipated. Little kids are not mini human beings, and that's something pediatricians like to say. And yet here, they're very quick to extrapolate the fact that there is not going to be a different safety signal. They don't yet know that until you see the trial results. But what explains the AAP's dueling views? They want the EUA, but they don't want to recommend to their own providers to provide it off-label. They want the FDA to do that. Hmm, you'll have to think about that a little bit more. Boosters. We're out of our minds on boosters. If I want to recommend a booster to somebody. I want to see some data. I want to see data that by giving somebody a third dose, I reduce the rate of severe SARS-CoV-2 infection, the rate of hospitalization, the rate of death. I also want to know that I don't balloon the rate of myocarditis. I want to know what the rate of myocarditis is going to be in people. And it's going to vary between men and women in certain age groups. You need all that data before you dump aboard the booster train. And there's this other thing about boosters, which is, you know, there's a lot of people globally who have not even gotten the first dose. And the wave of SARS-CoV-2 is going to hit them. And you're going to be turning on your television one day and seeing casualties like you've never seen before, and you may have some regret over the fact that we did not do more in this moment. And these are a zero-sum game. If you spend all your manufacturing capabilities and distribution capabilities on giving a third mRNA dose to your population, to some degree that does come at the expense of other people. I don't know what to tell you. Myocarditis. There's a paper out in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's on myocarditis, and it makes the case compellingly that for all people in a population, in this case, Israel, it is better to get the vaccine than it is to get SARS-CoV-2. Well, no, duh, everyone knew that. You know, uh, it's blatantly obvious it's better to get the vaccine than to get the virus. Of course, that is the case. The question is, for the subgroup of individuals who are young men between the ages of, say, 16 and 24, do they really need the two doses, or are they best served by a one-dose strategy? The second dose has a large increase in the myocarditis signal. The one dose doesn't have that much of it, and the one dose provides a vast amount of benefit. Plus, the risk of severe SARS-CoV-2 infection after one dose, given that age, it's likely to be very, very low. And in fact, we do have a natural experiment going on. The UK has, in fact, endorsed this for 16 and 17-year-olds. They're just giving them one dose. And we've, they've also given one dose previously and had a longer follow-up. So people have, are playing around with this dosing scheme. That is the dilemma. The dilemma isn't in all ages, is it better to get the vaccine than not? Of course, it's better to get the vaccine. Was there any doubt? The dilemma is in this subgroup, this key, delicate subgroup, and this study does not even present the outcomes in that subgroup in isolation, which is to me ridiculous. They are missing the question that people are talking about. And it's something that can easily lead to retweets. People can like it. People can you know, be rah, 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 we're pro-vaccine. But you're ignoring the fact that there may be a real safety signal here in this real population. And there might be a way to split the difference here in a very thoughtful and nuanced way. And when you're not willing to have that conversation, I think you do a big disservice to the field. So My overall thoughts here are, um, more than anything, I think it is an inevitability that we will be exposed to SARS-CoV-2 over the course of the next few years. It's only a matter of time. You may have some breakthrough infection. You can boost, not boost, uh, but you want to at least have some vaccine in your system when that exposure comes. That will be in your best interest. Um, But whether or not... Uh, young adolescents need two doses. I think there's some room to think about that a little bit more cautiously. Whether or not in the meantime we should be engaged in sort of theatrics such as masking two-year-olds, such as uh, outdoor mask mandates are now in Oregon. The, this is theater. It gives the illusion that politicians are doing something, but they're not actually tackling the core issues, which would be the rapid deployment of vaccines to people who don't have it and the thoughtful use of vaccines in different groups and perhaps alternative strategies in people with the highest rate of myocarditis. So those are my thoughts just today. Had to do it, had to do a little roundup because uh, when I look on Twitter, I see see a lot of insanity and I see a lot of people who have uh, ignored what I think to be some very simple principles of how you think about medical therapies. So on that positive note, until next time. Got a lot to talk about today. And first up, Duke University. Somebody who works at Duke messaged me with the most interesting update. And I went online. In fact, I found a news article that confirmed all these things. Duke University has a very high rate of vaccination, but like a lot of universities with a high rate of vaccination, they still insist upon testing people who don't have any symptoms. And lo and behold, when you do such a thing, you find PCR positive cases. And what have they done now in response? Well, they have instituted an outdoor mask mandate. I don't know where to get started. First of all, Testing asymptomatic vaccinated people on your college campus might be something that your consultant recommended, but it lacks good evidence, and if you really are a place of higher learning, you might want to run a randomized controlled trial even at your own institution or in partnership with a few other institutions to figure out whether or not all this asymptomatic screening is actually beneficial. The next thing I would say is, even if you are concerned about a rise in asymptomatic PCR positivity where, at most, someone had mild cold-like symptoms the response to that can't be outdoor masking. Why respond by doing something that doesn't help the problem? Why not just slaughter a goat? It doesn't make sense to me that you're doing outdoor masking when we know over and over again that the vast majority of instances of transmission are indoors, and we also just have no credible evidence that wearing a cloth mask outdoors will do anything to lower the rate of spread. So to me, it's bizarre. It, it suggests a growing anxiety a growing irrationality that I see in this final endgame of SARS-CoV-2. The next thing I'd say, there's a thread out there that's really long and it got, I don't know, tens of thousands of retweets, and it's about how you should never take off your N95 when you go indoors. If you work in a building, you gotta leave it on because the person who was there last may have sprayed aerosols into the air and then left, and left those aerosols lingering. So you don't know they didn't do that, so you can't take off your N95. And this thread even went so far as to as to call it pulmonary promiscuity and they said that if you want to eat your lunch and know that you'll be safe you got to go so do so in your car again i don't know what uh what uh, what the goal is here after you've been vaccinated particularly if you are not immunocompromised if you're young and healthy you need to to get back into it. You need to get back into life. What are you waiting for? And what do you think is going to happen? You may go through all these elaborate precautions, but then how will you feel when in two years or three years you eventually come into contact with SARS-CoV-2? It is endemic. It is in other animal species. It's not going away. It's just going to be there. It's going to get into your nostril. It may even lead to a PCR test positivity, if you, especially if you look when you don't have any symptoms, and it may cause mild symptoms in most people who are vaccinated. The end point of SARS-CoV-2 is the vaccine, the two vaccines for most people. And it might be a little bit more for people who are older and vulnerable after a period of time, et cetera, et cetera. We're gonna talk about boosters in a second. But the end point is not avoiding the vaccine at all costs. If so, you might as well just wear an N95 on for the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Can you sustain it? I don't think so. Your face will fatigue before the virus fatigues. It will catch up with you. So these kind of long threads, who are they appealing to? They're appealing to a group of people whose anxiety has overtaken them. We've forgotten what we're even trying to accomplish. You'll never get rid of this virus. And on that point, the next point, Australia. Australia has given up on zero COVID. The island nation that had a lot of unique advantages, particularly they may have also had a low seed load in the first few weeks of March. We don't know. We don't know what the seed load was, i.e. the number of cases when we all got very worried about SARS-CoV-2. But they have now finally thrown in the towel on zero COVID. An article in The Economist explains they don't think it's sustainable. They don't think it's possible. And I've been saying this since February. I wrote an article in MedPage today about how we need to move to harm reduction. We can't exist in zero-COVID framework. It certainly doesn't make sense in the United States or the United Kingdom, and even Australia has thrown in the towel. What does that tell you? It tells you the zero-COVID delusion—it's gone, and it needs to be eradicated. The zero-COVID delusion can be eradicated. Unfortunately, the virus cannot be. Randomized control trials. Now, you know, I'm a believer in the need to do cluster-randomized control trials of cloth masking, particularly for very young kids, like 2 through 5. Why? The WHO says one thing and the CDC and the AAP say the other. And when you have global authorities with opposite recommendations, you totally have equipoise. In fact, other nations in Europe, they think our practices in the United States are so out of line, they won't even mask anyone under 12 in the UK at any point in time, including during the Delta wave. Sweden, Norway, Denmark, they're also very reluctant to mask young kids. They believe—I don't know where they get this idea—that it is important, actually, to see faces and communicate when young kids are learning language. There's only a ton of studies that support that claim. But in this country, we go the other way. We think we ought to do it. We think we're wrong to even question such a thing. And then I suggest the easy tiebreaker, cluster randomized trials. It will sort out who's right or wrong, but they say things like we can't do it. And now the newest rebuttal is, well, we didn't do a RCT of what brand potassium to give someone, so we can't do an RCT of this. I was like, well, you didn't do an RCT of a trivial question with very little clinical importance and people don't feel so passionately about and no one really cares. So you can't do an RCT of this thing with massive national importance that many, many people feel very strongly about that is really locking up legislatures that is a political issue that has become sort of had a life of its own. It's the single most dominant conversation piece. And you can't do a randomized trial of that to sort it out? It's ridiculous. It is a very, very important question. If you're a real scientist, you'll want to get the answer in this pandemic. And if you don't, you'll have to wait for the next one. I don't know how long that'll be, but um, if, uh, if, uh, if you want, it might come quicker than you think. I don't know. It depends on what people consider a pandemic. So they might, they might want it to come very fast. The last thought, this Marin County, study there's an anecdote about Marin county and it's in the cdc's journal and people are up in arms about this anecdote and of course the anecdote is a teacher came in and the teacher initially thought she had allergies or he or she actually we don't know he she or they we don't know who they are the teacher thought they had allergies but then a few days later they started to have headache and fever feeling quite unwell and they kept coming to class which actually is kind of a big faux pas in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, there are a lot of things we can debate, but when you're really feeling sick, don't go to work, okay? Don't go to work. That's a simple rule. I think that's a rule that probably should have been there all this time for years in the past, and it can have that rule going forward. But this teacher came in, and the teacher wore the mask most of the day, except when the teacher read some books where the teacher had to take the mask off. And I... Sympathize with such a view because when you're talking, giving a lecture, speaking very vigorously, that mask is gonna creep into your mouth. Sure enough, it happens to all of us. We find it quite irritating. But this teacher took it off. And of course, many of the kids in the class got sick. I think it was 55% of the kids in the class, they had a PCR positive swab, but only about one in three actually had symptoms. And of course, four parents, I think, got sick. And some kids in a different class, that is three years apart in age, got sick. One of the things that also happened in the background was there was a sleepover for some of these kids outside of school, um, and they did whole genome sequencing on many of the students, and they found that the students had a sequence that's quite similar, consistent with the same virus. Unfortunately, they didn't have whole genome on the teacher, but it's reasonable to believe that this is all the same thing. But what's difficult to know is how much of it spread in the class and how much of it spread out of the class. Everyone is quick to say the reason the teacher spread it to the students was that the teacher took the mask off for one hour but it's possible that that was when it spread. But it's also possible that it spread during the seven hours the teacher was in that room with the kids with the mask on. Who knows? It's an anecdote. Like all anecdotes, it's not very useful to change policy. But this anecdote is out there, and everyone is up in arms about the anecdote. And some people think it actually means that we oughtn't have school or we have to wait indefinitely for the possibility of a vaccine in the younger age group. I don't think it means any of that. I think it is a anecdote, just like there are anecdotes of bad things happening after vaccine. And you can't make decisions based on anecdotes. You have to make decisions based on the raw numbers, the raw risks and benefits, the numerical numbers. And we know, for the most part, school is remarkably safe. And we also know, surprise, surprise, that school offers very huge benefits to the kids who attend. And we've already shut it down for so long. And Vlad Kogan and I have a few more thoughts about this little anecdote that's coming in an article tomorrow on MedPage Today, and I won't spoil it for you. But I think it's a, it, it also shows, I think, the greatest failure, which is that the CDC, this is the level of data they bring to the table, the story of Marin County, where it really matters if the teacher had whole genome sequencing or not. This is not the level of evidence we should be operating at in a sophisticated, intelligent country. We should be able to run cluster randomized trials of masking, no masking, HEPA filter, no HEPA filter, open window, no window, teacher masking, teacher not masking, cohorting, distance between kids. All of these can be arms in a mega randomized control trial that will actually answer which of these things help and which don't help. The final thing I'd say, some people got mad at me and they said like, you don't know what it's like here and they're in some place that happens to be hit very hard in the moment and I feel bad for them. I feel bad that they're in that place. So you don't know what it's like here. You see several people on the vent you want to do everything to help them. So that's why we need to mask two-year-olds. I said, look, I'm with you. I want to do everything to help those people too. I want to avoid you having to take care of so many people all at once. But the reason I want the cluster randomized trial is I genuinely don't know if a policy of masking two-year-olds is actually going to affect what you're looking at. And if it's not going to affect what you're looking at, if it's just something you do that makes you feel better, it's no different than slaughtering an animal, slaughtering a goat like our ancestors used to do when they thought they were dealing with, uh, with the solution to a problem. So what are my thoughts here overall? My thoughts are we are descending into a very bad place. We're getting people who are celebrating the idea that after vaccination, I'm going to wear an N95 and eat lunch in my car. For how long? For a year? For two years? For five years? For 10 years? What's your end point? What do you think is going to happen when you finally come back? Are you ever going to come back? And if you come back, you know, you're going to get hit with the virus eventually. You might not get that sick. Probably won't because you've been vaccinated. That's the good thing. That's the solution. And and in the meantime, what are you going to do? You're going to go through all these theatrics? You still might get hit. You're giving up a lot of life to pursue this anxiety, I think. The Duke, the Amherst of the world, testing asymptomatic college kids. What are you doing? You're trying to appease their parents? What What are you doing? You're trying to score political points? You're not helping anybody. I don't see. I don't understand how you would be you're implementing outdoor mask mandates. You're a place of higher education. People are supposed to learn how to think at your institution. What are they What are they learning from the implicit curriculum? That rationality is dead? That we can implement irrational solutions to problems if it makes us feel better? I think this is a very bad precedent. And I continue to fault that one of the things that went wrong here is that there are so many people who recommend this. And they're getting paid by the company that makes the test. And them and the company that makes the test are writing the model that shows that if you use the test, you're gonna be better off, but that's not empirical data. It's a model that's predicated on the assumptions that they themselves have inserted, and they have a deep financial conflict of interest. Now, people who are pro-cluster randomized trial of masking kids, there is no financial conflict of interest because there's no big cluster RCT company that's gonna make fat cash after all this. This is simply science. We wanna know the answer to these questions, And if I must admit, as I've said before, it's got to sound a bit a bit ridiculous to people, doesn't it? The idea that you can mask a child for six to eight hours a day, but then for that two hour nap, they all just sleep side by side in the same room, and the virus maybe naps too, but then the, then the virus, of course, will wake up, and then you've got to put the mask back. I mean, doesn't it sound a bit a bit a bit diluted, doesn't it? I mean I'm just saying it sounds a bit a bit crazy if you if you listen if you if you ask me and the fact that that is the recommendation i think puts people in a very bad place because how can you take seriously people who recommend things to you that are patently absurd this is a point that my colleague john mandrilla likes to make people have a common sense here and when you start adding things to your wish list your bucket list that don't make sense like that a vaccinated person has to take their lunch to their car and eat you know, the saddest, I, I thought I've seen some sad lunches, but that would be, I think, the saddest lunch that the two-year-old's got to wear this cloth mask that, that's all soaked in snot and that they take off for that long nap. When you start suggesting these things in addition to the things that matter, vaccination, you're going to lose a lot of people along the way. And you're really doing the world a disservice. And if you really believe so ardently in it, then do the study that might answer the question. Because I do think it's possible that it works at some age. I just don't know where that cutoff is because there's no credible data. You know, it's possible that below a certain age, children lack the executive function to do it right enough to succeed. And there's a JAMA paper recently suggesting that, you know, even in a stadium event where there were very strict rules, that there's about a three out of four mask compliance that one out of four people didn't wear it right. That's, you know, adults in a setting where it's kind of enforced or people want to do it. You start to go to kids, you start to go to settings where it might not be enforced. Last thing, the outdoor masking in Palo Alto and some other places. Why are you making the kids wear these outdoor masks at recess? What are you doing? What, what is the goal of these policy choices? Is the goal to do irrational things that don't actually deal with the problem or is the goal to tackle the problem? The problem is one problem, that there are pockets of this country that through cultural differences and through bad ideas, Um, and maybe through lack of compassion and some other things, they are unvaccinated. You need to reach those people. That's the problem. That's what you need to focus on. Oh, boosters. Boosters. I can't forget boosters. The have had their meeting today, and they seem a little bit peeved, if if you ask me, a little bit peeved that they're learning about boosters from political appointees. You see, what you want with boosters is you want the people who push and recommend boosters to be people who reviewed randomized data that show boosters are beneficial. And boosters might also have an age gradient. They might work well for 65-year-olds, but are they necessary for 35-year-olds, for 25-year-olds, for 15-year-olds? And if so, what is the benefit of the booster? Is the booster gonna eradicate the virus and have it be COVID zero? I don't think it is. The virus is just gonna come right back when that booster starts to have a diminishing, neutralizing antibody and and get you then. So what is the booster? The booster can only be to avert severe infection, and we need randomized data to show that that's the case. There's some terrible preprint people are citing that compares people in Israel who got the booster to those who didn't, you just look at table one and they're like different ages, different genders, different races, they're just different people. They're totally different people. So what are you gonna conclude from that sort of data? I really, I struggle to, struggle to think. I think we're reaching a place where people and their personal anxiety and their personal irrationality are guiding a policy discussion for the masses and they risk, I think, deepening the problems of the pandemic, which are restrictions that don't make sense, while not doing the things that do make sense, which is vaccination. So, you know, that's where we are. And uh, on that positive note, that'll conclude uh, this video. I'm back with exciting results. This is the study from Bangladesh. This is a cluster randomized control trial of different strategies of community level masking. Here's what they did. They took a number of communities in Bangladesh and randomized them to control arm, which meant you didn't get anything special. Some people wore masks, some didn't. Surgical masking, where you were given some surgical masks and instructions on how to wear surgical masks and told about SARS-CoV-2, and cloth masking. And they were able to look to see, in that community, what was the spread of SARS-CoV-2. And they did it based on symptoms, but also based on the more rigorous, and the primary endpoint of the study, symptoms plus serological confirmation that you had SARS-CoV-2. Now, when a study is like this, an open-label study, you need that blood test to document that you had or didn't have SARS-CoV-2. You can't just go by symptoms alone, because wearing a mask might make you report symptoms differently. But lo and behold, they got the answer. If you were in the surgical group, you had a statistically significant reduction in the rate of SARS-CoV-2 spread in that community. The cloth mask group was null—it had a wide confidence interval, but the point estimate was basically the control arm estimate. The way I interpret this study, surgical mask wins, cloth mask loses. Cloth mask does not confer a benefit when recommended to a community. Or in other words, we recommended the wrong mask in the United States. We've been recommending the wrong mask for 18 months. Why? Because we didn't do a randomized control trial like this. What a failure. A colossal failure. Had we done this a year ago, we would have been in a much better place. We would have known what mask to recommend. And in fact, if you look around, the vast majority of people wear cloth masks. Those masks, when recommended in this fashion, failed to work. There are a few things to discuss. Some people say here that this was a lower bound estimate, that if people wore masks even more, it would be even more beneficial. Well, that's speculation. You know, it's possible you're right, but they didn't, and you don't know, and you need to see if you can get that to happen in another study. It would have been great to do a study like that in the United States, where the mask utilization might have been higher. The next thing they say is the age. If you look at the group of people and the difference in SARS-CoV-2 by age, it appeared that as somebody was older, particularly over the age of 60, there was more of a reduction in SARS-CoV-2 in those age groups and below 40, there was no reduction. Does that mean that if you're younger than 40, you oughtn't to wear the mask? What it means is when all the adults in a community are instructed to wear the mask, that benefit is reaped by the oldest people in that community, that's all it means. What does this have to do with uh, schools and masking young children? The answer is absolutely nothing. This is not a childhood mask study. It didn't randomize kids in school. And uh, kids in school mostly use cloth masks. Kids who are 2 through 4, they have a huge period of the time when they take a nap each day when they don't wear the mask. Does this study extrapolate to them? Absolutely not. But what it does show you is that we desperately need randomized cluster trials in this age group. Now, previously in a column in Medpage today, I wrote that you know masking may not have an all no or all yes answer it might depend on the type of mask cloth versus surgical the age of the person the rate of SARS-CoV-2 in the community and additional factors we will tease that out a little bit from this study but we will still have a lot of open questions and that's the pressing need to do more studies more than anything this study shows you that cluster randomized control trials in the middle of a pandemic are possible why are they the only people who did one where was the CDC where's the study in the United States it's a catastrophic failure the next thing it shows is that surgical masks did work but cloth masks didn't they're negative and recommending cloth masks as a population-based mandate or population-based intervention that's a fool's errand you could have used that capital to recommend surgical masks or to make surgical masks and distribute them to your community you didn't and that to me is a huge failure i think this study validates randomized control trials yet again I'm happy to take a deeper look into the the data. It's a long paper and I will look at it and I'll look at their regression analyses. Um, but these are my initial, my initial impressions. Um, and as for masking kids, it proves absolutely nothing. It doesn't show a reduction among spread in school-aged children. Ah, the last thing, it just came to my mind. The last thing is some people say that these results will extrapolate to vaccinated people. Well, that's not the case either. They don't extrapolate to vaccinated people you need to do a different study if you wanna make the claim that vaccinated people need to wear surgical masks and I think you'll have a very different study on your hands because the probability that they're carrying this at any point in time is gonna be far lower than in this study. So very interesting trial, cluster randomized control trial Bangladesh. The first of two to my knowledge, the other one is in the Guinea Bissau. We'll see what they find. This I think shows, like other studies, like the McIntyre cluster RCT study in BMJ Open from many years ago, that cloth masking, that wasn't the answer. Um, And I think we fail to find any significant benefit here. The confidence interval is wide, so someone will say, well, it's possible, there's still a benefit. Sure, but why do you wanna do the the arm that doesn't work when you got an arm that's working quite clearly? So I think uh, it's it's negative. And I think this will be misinterpreted in many ways, but the headline should read, we wore the wrong mask. Americans, ill-advised by not doing randomized control trials, they were encouraged to wear the wrong mask. And I think that's the key take home. And kids, it's time for another study there. There's been some bombshell news at the FDA over the last few days. Two senior officials in the Office of Vaccine Research and Review, Marion Gruber and her deputy, Philip Krauss, have resigned. This is a huge, a huge news story that hasn't gotten the coverage it deserves. Let me talk about it. First of all, if you work at the US Food and Drug Administration, the absolute best time in your entire career is the moment when you're making decisions of immense worldwide importance and that's where they are right now. To resign in these circumstances is itself An incredible thing. And why did it happen? Multiple news outlets are suggesting that they resigned over pressure from the White House to approve boosters on a timeline dictated by the White House. This is a huge problem. Now, you may remember that back during the Trump administration, many people, myself included, were quite upset to even have a whiff of political pressure on the FDA. The FDA has to make safety and efficacy decisions in a space free of political influence. They cannot be shaped by political factors. It can only be shaped by the data that they see. We've seen over the last few weeks the White House has run a PR campaign saying boosters are coming. People I know are calling me, telling me that on September 20th they're going to get a booster. How do they know they're going to get a booster on September 20th? Because it's been announced. People have been pushing this. But what is the data to support boosters? I've done multiple videos, written multiple columns, where I say the data is simple. It's not about diminishing vaccine efficacy. It's about the safety and effectiveness of the booster. If you give a booster to somebody, what is the rate of myocarditis? What is the reduction in severe SARS-CoV-2 infection? You need to know those two things and make sure one is bigger than the other before you proceed. It's about the risks and benefits of the product. This is medicine 101, people. We don't approve products because the situation is bad. We approve products because they make the situation better. And that's what these two officials at the FDA understand. They felt pressure, it seems like, from multiple news stories, and they resigned as a result of that. That is not a good, that is not a good situation. One, what message does that send for confidence in vaccines? It's a devastating message. We live at a time where public perception of vaccines is incredibly important, and it needs to be preserved at all costs. White House influence on the agency leading to resignations. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen for the process. The next thing, what about their, what do they want? What did they actually want to see out of boosters? These are officials tasked with thinking about safety, efficacy of vaccines. I think it's very important to know what they wanted. We've seen over this last week that Moderna has submitted a plan, a plan to bring boosters forward based on an uncontrolled study of 344 people or something like that. I don't know how an uncontrolled study is gonna help you understand the risk benefits around boosters. You need, again, randomized control trials. This is not rocket science. You need to know that the risks and benefits of boosters that the benefits far outweigh the harms. And you don't know that from an uncontrolled study. In fact, the study sample size is so small, you won't even know the frequency of rare AEs that are of critical importance, such as myocarditis, especially in that group of men between the ages of 16 and 24. What are we to think of all this? I think there's one more additional layer we have to we have to factor in. This is the current narrative, is that it was the booster pressure that led to the resignations, but there's something else that's been brewing. The FDA has requested the sample size of ongoing studies in age group five to 11 be doubled. That's a very unusual choice. It's not often that the FDA increases sample size midstream for quote unquote safety concerns, which was the, the offered reason. By increasing it just by twice, it doesn't give you a ton of power to find rare safety events. So one wonders how much more power do you have in that study? What safety events were you missing that you now can find? That's a very unusual set of safety events with a certain frequency. And the safety events most people believe, even myself included, that, that we're thinking about in this age group are going to be a little bit more infrequent than that based on other ages to date. So, why did they do this? Why did do they double the sample size? Are they pushing back politically here? Do they feel the pressure of this decision as well? I think it's very important that these people are interviewed the moment that they resign in October, November, and, uh, and they can give voice to what their concerns are. I think this is uh, devastating news. We have no FDA commissioner. We're losing people with experience in the vaccine regulation space. We're getting a bunch of fresh people making these kinds of decisions. This is uh, it's not good for drug policy and drug regulation, which is, of course, my interest. Um, I think those are my thoughts. I can't think of anything else. I think you want to know why they resigned. And I think the mere fact they resigned is already devastating. It's already a devastating finding. And if we don't listen to what they have to say and take very seriously the levels of evidence that they require, uh, we stand on the cusp of making some of the most foolish decisions uh, society can ever make around vaccines. Vaccines are an incredible and important thing in human civilization. You don't want any perception of politics in this space. I got some updates for you about SARS-CoV-2. First up, I had an article out last week in The Atlantic about the case for masking kids. I pointed out that there is no international consensus on whether or not to mask school aged children. And in fact, the United Kingdom has never masked a child younger than the age of 12 as a mandate in school. Now, of course, my article was really a call for cluster randomized control trials. These are the only trials that can adjudicate the claim as to whether or not masking kids offers a benefit in the reduction of spread of SARS-CoV-2. We just don't have those studies. So as far as I'm concerned, we have no good data that masking kids lowers the spread of SARS-CoV-2. And there certainly are downsides as I describe in the article. Now many people have come back at me and said something like, well, the Bangladesh study, the Bangladesh study. I read the Bangladesh study in detail and I should have an op-ed on that this week. But my point about the Bangladesh study is first of all, one, cloth masks failed to improve outcomes in adults. Let me say that again. Cloth masks did not work even in adults. So what do you think they do in kids exactly? If they didn't work in adults in Bangladesh, are they gonna work in kids? Now, you might say, well, what about surgical masks? And I'll concede to you, this study is great. I mean, we learned about surgical masks, and I'm going to promulgate that in this article this week. But the masks that we've been having kids wear all this time, they are not surgical masks. They are cloth masks. We're making kids wear this mask that has failed in adult testing. And we don't have cluster randomized trials for kids. Somebody said, well, is the mask going to filter different in kids? I guess, hypothetically, we're talking about a surgical mask here because that's the mask that works. And I would say, no, I doubt that the surgical mask will filter air any different, but I do think kids aren't little adults. They behave quite differently. For instance, I've never seen a bunch of adults lay cots out next to each other side by side at work and take a say two hour nap when they take off the mask. I've never seen that, but I do know that young kids do that in daycare. And so that's one key difference. Somebody else fired back at me and said when they sleep, that's actually when they stay the furthest apart because kids are playing on top of each other all the time. And my argument for that is, are you trying to make my case for me that kids' behavior is different than adults' behavior? Because it sounds like you're making my case for me. I think we have a problem when we cannot acknowledge that the evidence for something is weak when nations around the world, our peer nations, just don't do it. I mean, what are we to think here? Do we really think the evidence is strong when the United Kingdom just doesn't do it? Do we think the evidence is strong when Sweden doesn't do it? The fact that other peer nations are not doing it is a clue that the evidence is not as strong as you think. And so if you want to keep saying the evidence is very strong, you're going to lose a lot of credibility because I know, as someone who's only studied medical evidence for 15 years, that the evidence is not strong. And many other people who are sensible and can read know it's not strong. If you think strong evidence is a confounded observational study, then you got to get in the ivermectin business, too. That's all they have either. You know, they have bad randomized trials that are increasingly falling by the wayside and confounded observational studies. You want to have a consistent framework for evidence. And when it comes to these kinds of interventions, that framework is cluster or individual randomization, depending on the question. For question as to whether or not an intervention can cease spread in a community, the cluster design is a nice design because it doesn't tell you whether or not it stops it on the way out or whether or not it stops it on the way in, but it does tell you that it stops it or slows it or impairs it, and that's what we found from Bangladesh. More to come on Bangladesh. One of the most interesting things that happened this week is the response to the Atlantic article. And that response was a lot of people who agree, and I think a lot of people in Europe who strongly agree, and then some people who thought that they want to cancel their subscription to the Atlantic. And I joked that you might as well cancel your subscription to your eyes and ears if you don't want to confront information that runs against your priors. The world is full of things that may contradict your worldview and you need to embrace it, take it in, think about it and maybe change your mind or maybe not. But the idea that you have to censor or remove every piece of information that you dislike, that's a very childish emotion and it's a very childish response. And it's something that's taken greater hold in our public consciousness. I find it very odd. I'm not familiar with a world where anytime I read something I don't like, I want it removed. There are many randomized control trials that I dislike a great deal, such as the polo trial. You know if you listen to this channel how much I dislike the polo trial. But I've never asked the New England Journal of Medicine to remove the polo trial from their website. I think that's a bit bad. Alistair Monroe, The person you need to follow if you're interested in kids is Alistair Monroe. He's a pediatric pediatrician, infectious disease expert, he's a researcher, he's in the United Kingdom, and he has a lovely thread out just now about the IFR in the UK for kids. And he argues, rather persuasively, that the IFR is about 1 in 120,000, which I think is consistent with some other estimates. What does this mean? If that's the risk of SARS-CoV-2 in terms of fatality for kids, and of course hospitalization is much more frequent, but that's the IFR for kids, and you couple that with what's the seroprevalence in kids— You start to get some idea of what the risk-benefit profile of a vaccine in kids has to be like to be palatable. So for instance, the higher the number of kids who've already cleared SARS-CoV-2, the tougher it is for a vaccine to really make a case that it can offer an additive benefit because you have a lot of kids out there who are already rather immune to the virus. And the lower the IFR, again, the higher the hurdle a vaccine has to clear before it comes to, I think, widespread use. The United Kingdom has decided not to vaccinate anyone under the age of 16 and only to give one dose for 16 and 17 year olds. That's different than the United States. And that's because they actually have good data on seroprevalence. They have good data on IFR and hospitalization. So they can kind of do this calculation. We shall see as we go to 5 to 11 what it ought to be. But I think we need new seroprevalence data to answer that question. So my overall thoughts today. One, I think it's quite funny that people would say that the data to support masking kids with cloth masks is robust. The data supporting cloth masks is not good for cloth masks at any age. We should be moving to surgical masks for adults. And the data in children is non-existent. There has never been a cluster randomized trial of kids in school. The Bangladesh study does not apply to kids in school, not because the mask works any different, but the kids behave differently. Also, kids' Have not been wearing the mask that's worked in Bangladesh, which is a surgical mask. So, at a minimum, as we move forward, we need to switch to the surgical mask, at least adults and children. We need to do a cluster randomized control trial. If you run it with a large enough sample size, not only can you ask, answer the question as to whether or not masks slow SARS-CoV-2 spread, you can actually include an interaction coefficient and ask if that depends on the age of the child. Now this is really cool and interesting. You can basically take the recovery model and ask if age interacts with the delta between mask-no mask. And maybe it's possible, I don't know the answer, but I'm just speculating, it might be possible that surgical masks for kids work above age eight or age 10, and maybe not below that age. It could be something that you don't quite expect, where neither the critics nor the proponents are totally right. And there's a need, a societal need to do those kinds of studies to tease that out. We don't want to live in ignorance. We want to know that answer. We want to recommend it where it works and which mask works. And we don't want to recommend a mask that doesn't work in whom and to, to whom it doesn't work in. So I think it's very clear these kinds of studies are necessary. The fact that the economists are the ones doing the Bangladesh study and not the CDC, is really a failure of US systems. And the fact that people go on Twitter and they very confidently proclaim that the evidence is strong when it is in fact no such thing, I think is a failure of medical education. We have failed for so long to try to teach people how to critically appraise evidence. That failure is revealed every time we, we review a new drug sponsored study, and that failure is also revealed when we start talking about NPIs that are really start to become more tied to our identity, our politics, our brand, tied to our tribe. It's a very dangerous situation, and so if you take a lot of people with poor training and evidence appraisal, and get them to believe rather fervently that this is the right thing to do, they view it increasingly in terms of moral terms and less and less in terms of the evidence. And I think that's where we are right now, and it's a deep problem. And this problem is a problem that will someday come to bite us in the ass. It will someday be used for something that we don't like or that does have perhaps even stronger downsides, and that won't be a good day. And there's another way this is going to play out that you'll have to stay tuned for because I'm working on something to try to flesh that out. I want to talk about Los Angeles. Over the last week, something interesting has happened. The Los Angeles Public School District has mandated vaccines to all kids over the age of 12 in order to go to school in person. This is a very unusual and a new mandate that has not existed prior to this time. It's the first school district, to my knowledge, that is mandating COVID vaccination for young kids. And we're not just talking 16 and up. We're not talking about where the vaccine has full FDA approval. We're talking about 12 to 15, where it currently only sits under the auspices of the emergency use authorization. Now, I've got a few thoughts here. One, I think this is a problematic decision and we need to have a broader discussion about it. One, I think we have to acknowledge that. There's a huge range in terms of opinions around vaccinating kids between the age of 12 and 15. For instance, the United Kingdom, their vaccine experts have decided that we do not want to vaccinate kids in this age group. Meanwhile, Los Angeles is saying, if you don't get vaccinated in this age group, you cannot go to school. That's kind of a big difference. It's the same science. It's the same clinical trials. It's the same age group. And yet we have such drastically different opinions. And that is a problem, I think. The next point if you have a policy where kids have to get vaccinated in order to attend the public schools of los angeles which by no means cater to the most affluent people in this country they often cater to poor kids who need school as a ladder of upward mobility and if you restrict their access if they don't get vaccinated who are you punishing you are punishing very young and vulnerable children you're preventing them from coming to school and for what for not getting a vaccine, that maybe it's not really even their decision. Maybe their parents aren't allowing them to get it. Maybe they're living in a culture where they have a lot of apprehension to it. They're not have enough information about it. And in response to that, we're gonna throw them out of school. I think that's a very cruel thing to do. The next thing I would say is, There's no tailoring in this policy for kids who've recovered from SARS-CoV-2. They have very good antibodies if they recovered from SARS-CoV-2. There's no tailoring for young boys between the ages of 12 and 18. A young boy has a much higher risk of myocarditis with that second dose of vaccine. They have a lot of benefit from the first dose of vaccine. I'm not necessarily convinced that they benefit commensurately from the second dose and enough to offset the increased risk of myocarditis. I think it's a live discussion. And surely it's a live discussion when the United Kingdom advisors are saying, don't do this. So I find Los Angeles County's decision to be troubling. It's part of a growing movement I see where people want to use brute force to accomplish some policy aims. And that might have a time and a place, but it's very difficult to use brute force in places of ambiguity. And I would say that vaccinating kids between the ages of 12 and 18, it should still be a personalized choice. And we shouldn't yet enforce this brute force of a mandate. If we do, we need to know much more about the safety signal. Now, many people have said, well, we have other mandates for other vaccines, you know, to come to school. Sure, you do. But this is very different. The risk to kids in this age group from this virus is very, very low. The vaccine for 12 to 15 does not have a full FDA approval currently. It sits under the auspices of an EUA. Our peer nations, the United Kingdom, a place where they also love children, they have decided not to vaccinate this age group. That's their expert advice. So this is a very different situation than the other vaccines that we're mandating. And I think it's very problematic. And I really think that using in-person school as a punishment for kids, denying them access to this public good, is a very, very cruel thing. And we, may, in retrospect, may regret this choice. If we're going to try to get people vaccinated, and we ought to do that, we got to start with the oldest people. They're the people who derive the most benefit. 12 to 15-year-olds get to that after you've gotten everyone over the age of 60, 40, 40. 30 vaccinated, then you can get to the kids. I disagree with the Los Angeles School District, and I worry that what's really going on here is the reason we have become so polarized on this issue. The reason why we're so fervent is that we're no longer considering these decisions as a scientist would, weighing the risks and benefits. We're considering them through a political and tribal lens where one party, the left-leaning party, They think that the more you do to push vaccines, younger, two doses, irrespective of gender and irrespective of age, that's all good. And I think it can be quite problematic. And so if there's some kids who end up with myocarditis as a result of this, or alternatively, if there's some kids who parents will just not let them get it and they're pulled out of school, those are both very bad outcomes. And you need to take that very seriously in your policy discussion. The other thing I'll have to say, john mandrola tracy beth haug uh, ali krug they have a paper out on myocarditis in this age group 12 to 15. they argue that the actual incidence from dose 2 is 1 in 6800. now they got a lot of pushback on twitter and people have a number of shortcomings in the methods that they point to but the authors have some tremendous replies and they've actually posted the raw data that you can adjudicate yourself but my point here is something separate Whenever there's an estimate of some adverse event, people get very upset if that estimate doesn't fit their priors. But the problem is, if the estimate is similar to other estimates, and in this case, we have had, for many months now, reports from the Israeli government that say it's around this ballpark, 1 in 3K to 1 in 6K. That's what's reported in Science and the New York Magazine. We also have the Ontario government's report, Moderna, dose 2, for that 18 to 22-year-old boys group. We're talking about a rate of 1 in 3800 so we have data that says that the mandrola paper it's more or less in this ballpark so i find much of the criticism to be disingenuous and to not be helpful we need to think about a variety of strategies for this age group including what i've been writing about a one dose strategy where you derive a lot of the benefit of vaccination without that excess increased myocarditis so la county I don't think this is what progressivism means. I don't think it means denying kids education. Kids who've already suffered and sacrificed enough by losing a year of education and denying them that because they, whether they are in a pocket, a culture, an environment, a family, a school, a location, they're feeling pressure not to get vaccinated. They may also not want to get vaccinated. They may be reluctant to get vaccinated. I don't think it's right to throw them out of school. I think it's a problematic decision. It's going to be a decision that comes to haunt us. If some of these kids end up with myocarditis, that's not going to be a great thing for vaccine safety. We are getting a little bit overboard here. Let's take it easy on the kids. Let's try to get them back to normalcy. They really don't need to be suffering so much from this pandemic virus. And much of that suffering has been imposed by adults protecting adult interests, which unfortunately, has denied them a year of school, which is a catastrophic harm to them. And we're going to learn more about that harm in the decades to come, I fear. I got to talk about these colleges and universities. You know, people keep dropping into my inbox, my DMs, and they tell me about what's going on in their colleges and universities. There are kids out there, mostly vaccinated. Different universities at different rates, 90%, 95%. Somebody just said Yale has 99% vaccination rate among the students. So they are exquisitely vaccinated. The staff, the faculty, they all have vaccine mandates. This is a vaccinated cohort, but they also live In a world of restrictions, there are many restrictions going on in these universities. One, they have to be tested weekly. Okay? Two, they have to wear masks. And many of these places don't ask them to wear the mask that worked in Bangladesh, the surgical mask. They ask them to wear any mask, including a nice Pokemon cloth mask, or any cloth mask. But I heard somebody say they like a Pokemon cloth mask. This is just a couple of the things they're doing. In addition to that, there are bans on large gatherings. There are bans on where they can go. There are restrictions on uh, whether or not they can drink in class. So that's something somebody said. They're in class, in a lecture, and they feel that craving. And Lord knows I know that craving, the craving for that sip of coffee. You know, the coffee, a super addictive substance, and our body just naturally takes sips as we keep our bloodstream caffeine level just where we need it to be. And this person was telling me that you can't do that, of course, because you can't even lower your mask to take a sip, even though you're vaccinated and everyone in the room is vaccinated, you gotta go in the hallway to take your sip. Coffee junkie. No, you gotta do that, of course. I have a few thoughts about these policies. One, I think any university that's implementing these policies has to state what is their goal What is their goal? Is their goal to minimize the number of PCR swabs that come back positive, the number of spit samples that are positive? Is that the goal? Is the goal to keep people well? And what are the stopping conditions of this? When does it end? What percent vaccination do you need? Is 99 not good enough? You need 100%, you need 120%. You're waiting for a booster. How many boosters are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? When will this end? When will it stop? The goal and the stopping rule have to make sense. They have to be tied to each other. And I have yet to see anyone articulate what the goal of this policy is. I believe it is inevitable in the course of the next five or 10 years that 100% of vaccinated people eventually become exposed to the virus SARS-CoV-2. It's an endemic virus. So what are you doing by pushing that out past your college years when life is over and it's not as much fun as it was in college? No, I don't get it. I mean, I really don't understand. What is the purpose of this? The next thing, even if your goal is to kind of push out when you might be exposed to the virus, if that is the goal, to push that out, why do things that don't work? Why, if the cloth mask didn't work in the Bangladesh study, which is a population essentially with 0% natural immunity and 0% vaccination, and it didn't work there, but the surgical mask did work, why not at least embrace the mask that seemed to be working? Why use the mask that's inferior in that study? But more to the point, What data do you have that any of these masks work in a population with a 99% vaccine rate? The Bangladesh study ain't got nothing to do with what's going on at Yale. It's literally totally different. We would never extrapolate a study like that in cancer medicine from one population that has an entirely different type of cancer to another population, another planet, another country that has a different cancer. We would never do such a thing. It's practically another planet. Um, So that's one thing, the testing weekly. That's also something that's bioplausible. Like it would make sense that that testing will catch things early and we can quarantine things off. But it's also possible that it doesn't work, that the test has some error rate, that compliance is low, that people don't abide by the quarantines. And the net result of all of this is just spending a lot of money to the consulting company that's paying your epidemiologist without actually slowing the spread. So I guess... I have a twofold problem. One is the goal merely to delay the inevitable, which I believe is the best possible goal. But if that's the goal, when will they stop the delay of the inevitable? Will they ever remove the restrictions? If so, what are the circumstances? But the next question is, if your goal is to delay this, to push it out when you might come into contact with the virus, I guess my question is, is the thing you're doing actually accomplishing that? And if the thing you're doing is not in fact accomplishing that, well, why are you doing that? Now, how might you make sense of this? Now, let's imagine that the places that were doing these things were full of super smart people. Wait a second, they are! And super smart people know that these universities could pool their resources and do a cluster randomized control trial, randomizing at the level of the dormitory. One dormitory could get weekly testing, another might not. One dormitory could get masking and they'd be told to cloth mask when they go in the hallways, the other dormitory not. Or even the university itself. The whole campus could be the unit of randomization. You can think of a clever way to solve this problem. And by solve, I mean just get some answer. Move towards some enlightenment on this issue. Don't just live in ignorance for the rest of your life. I think it's really problematic because these kids, you know, they had a promise. And that promise was you do your part. You get vaccinated and your life, your youth will be returned to you. But that promise is not being kept. Their youth, their their ability to do simple things, like take a sip of coffee, that's being taken away from them. Now that's a small thing, but having socialization, getting together, having large gatherings, having parties when you're 20, that is something that means something to a 20 year old. And I don't think it's the same coin as life, but it's hard to exchange those currencies. It's a very different coin of life. So we have administrators, I think, making policies that might be done to look good to other people they might be done to signal to donors or parents that we're taking this seriously but they need to articulate what is the goal of the policy what do we hope to do and we'll see if that makes sense and two under what conditions will we relax these rules and if they cannot articulate those two things i think they've failed at a fundamental intellectual level and the third thing they need to do is to show that the things they're actually doing actually work towards that goal And so if cloth masks did not work in Bangladesh, in a population with 0% vaccination, as you vaccinate to 99%, you plummet your event rate as low as it goes. What do you think the cloth mask is doing there? It's just a decoration, I suspect. If you're going to do something, you might have to recommend a real mask that works, like we learned from Bangladesh. But even then, whether it works under these conditions is something that warrants experimentation. You can make everyone spit in a tube every week, but does it actually make the campus safer or does it just enrich the consulting company that's selling you that test? So I think this is a deep problem. I have said before that I pity these kids that are going to college right now. They are in the midst of a pandemic that thank God has not affected them as badly as it's affected a lot of older people in society. So they have had huge sacrifices to their youth. Their youth has been disrupted, not necessarily to save them, but to save others. That's a, Huge act of altruism. We need to get off our high horse and thinking that this generation is not altruistic. They have sacrificed like, I've never seen a generation sacrifice. But at some point they have to start asking, what are we sacrificing for? How long do we do this? Is this in perpetuity? And what is the goal now? The vaccine is available. Get the vaccine. And then the university's got to answer these questions. So those are my thoughts. Many universities, I keep hearing about it. People are frustrated. It just don't make a lot of sense. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.